Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore how engaging across our racial and class divides can help bring us together to care for and nurture our democracy. My guest is Ian Haney-Lopez, professor at UC Berkeley School of Law and author of several books, including Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections, and Saving America. Lopez says strategic racism is a deeply corrosive force, and he's exploring how to counter its effects by encouraging people to come together across divides so we can focus on our commonalities, develop shared understandings of what we want from democracy and our elected officials, and work together to improve society. Lopez developed the Race Class Narrative Project and the Race Class Academy in an effort to counter dog whistle politics and build cross-racial and cross-class solidarity. This is part two of my conversation with Ian Haney-Lopez. In part one, we discussed the strategic use of racism in electoral politics to divide citizens across racial and other differences in an effort to retain power and wealth. When I say strategic racism, I really want to highlight the calculus of individuals looking around for means to achieve their objective. People have goals, they have agendas, and then they say, how do I get there? And very often they say, well, in the United States, the surest route to electoral politics and the surest route to hijacking democracy is by stoking racial conflict. That's strategic racism. Here, part one at newsincontext.net. This is also Civity Week on News in Context. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. To learn more, go to civity.org. I wanted to mention your book, Dog Whistle Politics. Dog whistle means only certain people hear it, but it feels as if dog whistle isn't dog whistle anymore, that we all get it. We're all hearing it going, there they go again. In that sense, there's an awareness. I would also argue that for some, maybe there isn't an awareness of what the real issue is. I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about the point of dog whistle politics. So dog whistle politics is a term that uses a dog whistle, a whistle for training dogs that blows at such a high frequency that human ears can't hear it. It uses the dog whistle as a metaphor for the idea that certain political speech is in code and that, for example, if one says states' rights or forced busing or um, the silent majority or urban crime, illegal aliens, terrorists, that these terms on their surface have no reference to race but underneath, they directly communicate a racist message to an audience that understands them. That's half right, but more importantly, it's half wrong. How is it half wrong? It's absolutely correct that dog whistling is designed to trigger strong racist fears and anxieties about supposedly dangerous and threatening others. But it's wrong to think that the audience hears that message clearly. On the contrary, the civil rights movement achieved an enormous success in making clear to the vast majority of Americans, including the vast majority of white people, that 
white supremacy is ugly and immoral. People don't want to think of themselves as racist. They, they don't want to be Klan members or neo-Nazis, not in the main. I mean, if we look at the numbers for those organizations, they're somewhere between 2 and 6% of the population. That's not who most people are. But just because you reject the Klan or reject the neo-Nazis, that doesn't mean you're free of these racist fears. They're there. The strategy of dog whistling is to stampede people who are convinced they're not racist, to convince those people that their deeply internalized racist fears are in fact not racist, but are instead common sense. So Donald Trump would say, I'm the least racist president ever. And he would say, if you're worried about criminally legal aliens coming over the southern border, you're not a racist. You're a patriot. That's common sense. And he'd say, if you're worried about crime in the cities, you just want to protect your family. And he'd say, if you're worried about terrorists from Muslim countries, that means that you want to protect the country. You want to protect your family. You're not racist. Over and over again, Donald Trump got what most critics of dog whistle politics still haven't understood. The point is not to appeal to people who know in their hearts that they favor white supremacy. The point is to stampede as many Americans as possible with racist ideas while still communicating to them, but you're not racist. You're a good person. Right, because no one wants to see themselves as not a good person or evil. So to counter that, you and Civity have been doing different work, but adjacent work, to bridge these divides and communicate these ideas and connect people across these these really fractured uh, differences that we that we have, and I'd love to talk now about uh, your work, uh, just your work in general. And I I know about the race class narrative project, um, but what what are you doing now to sort of address and counter all of these things that we've been discussing? So after I published Dog Whistle Politics in 2014, really laying out that this had been happening to us, that this racial electoral strategy was deeply connected to a class war that had essentially broken the New Deal and siphoned trillions of dollars from the vast majority of us and hurled it up into the economic stratosphere. After that, I began working with unions and foundations. And in that process, began working also with communication specialists and pollsters to try and figure out how to effectively communicate you know, the tactics of the right and the need for all of us to join together in order to stand up against strategies of intentional division. And that led to the Race Class Narrative Project. It led to uh, a free public website that I've put together, raceclassacademy.com. And I really understood the, the principal work at that point as being about giving people 
a language that they could use that through poll testing, through focus groups, we'd proven could be effective in creating an awareness of strategic racism and creating a sense among people of what they needed to do to come together to fight it. But in the last couple of years, I've really come to think that the most important work is really not a search for the phrases or precise language to use, but really an effort to push people to rethink racism itself. And when I say people, I mean both, to put a direct name on it, white people who've tended to think that racism is a problem primarily for people of color, but also racial justice activists who tend to think that racism is primarily a white problem aimed at people of color. Both sets of folks, which is to say almost all of us, really need to rethink that and really need to say, wait a minute, racism is the principal weapon in the class war the rich are winning. And the greedy rich succeed when they convince us to fear and hate one another. If we could get that insight, then the next insight follows, which is, I think, the sort of passivity insight. If the main threat we face is divide and conquer, then almost all of us immediately recognize the pragmatic solution is to unite and build. And that's the work, I think, of civity to say we're under direct threat through a strategy of divide and conquer. Let's do the hard work of building connections across difference. Yes, because it's the moral thing to do, but perhaps more importantly and more immediately, because it's the pragmatic thing to do. The only way to successfully counteract, divide, and conquer is to unite and build. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the fact that you're looking at people on different sides of this issue, um, the people that don't see race as an issue but for, uh, you know, white, white people basically who don't see race as an issue but for people of color, and also people in the social justice space who've been pushing hard, rightly so, to try to get some, some movement on this issue. But bringing these sides together to bridge these differences and to help them see each other's humanity is something that, yeah, of course, Civity finds hugely critical, extremely critical to being able to retain and strengthen democracy and all of the things that come with it. I think in the main, the single biggest threat to the welfare of white families in the United States, the single largest threat to the welfare of white families in the United States is racism against black and brown people. Because it's precisely these deeply internalized stereotypes of pathologically violent people or people with a foreign and inferior culture or people invading across the border. It's precisely these fears that are leading a majority of white people to elect politicians who frankly don't give a crap about them. Right, and they're voting against their own interests. Against their economic interests. They're voting for politicians beholden to, indebted to, 
economic titans, they think they're voting for their interests in the sense that they think they're voting for politicians who will defend them as the silent majority, the American heartland, those people who made America great. But that's the lie. That's the lie. Those things aren't true. The heartland of America is our values, and our values are shared across racial groups. Those who made America great, that's always been a multiracial group. The silent majority, that's multiracial in the United States. So what are the consequences of not recognizing that, of not understanding that it was a multiracial group of people who built the U.S.? When they've been convinced to vote for these politicians beholden to the economic titans, they've helped create a society in which real wages are stagnant for half a century, trillions have been transferred to the economic stratosphere. We've moved from a relationship, a regulated economy that was inclusive and provided routes of upward mobility to a corporate-controlled economy that is extractive in its relationship to the vast majority of us, to a society in which politicians routinely deny health care to people who vote for them who are dying for the lack of that health care. That's the society that people voting racial fears have created. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with UC Berkeley law professor Ian Haney Lopez about the use of strategic racism in politics. So when I say the single largest threat to the well-being of white families is black and brown racism, I don't mean that just in the moral sense that racism is a a poison of the soul, though I think that that's true too. I don't mean it also in the social sense that there's a lot of segregation and fear that leads people to wall themselves in, which is a hard way to live rather than being engaged and open and curious about others. Again, I think that's true. But the claim I'm making is in terms of hard, cold quality of life? Do you have a job that pays? Do you have a pension you can rely on? Is there equity in your home? Can you afford a home? Can you send your children to good schools? Do they have a future that's brighter than yours? If there's a a serious medical issue, is health care available to you? White people have destroyed themselves when they've listened to and been bamboozled by politicians and right-wing think tanks and right-wing media personalities into believing that it's people of color that threaten them, when it's not. It's the strategic racists who are the biggest threat, the strategic racists doing the bidding of the economic royalty, who are the biggest threat in the lives of 
white families today. Right. You mentioned healthcare. Who controls how the healthcare system works? It's people in Congress. And who controls, uh, for me, I come from media, I'm a former journalist, and watching the extraction of local newspaper profits and, and real estate money to the hedge funds, they're not reinvesting. And that harms us in so many, there are so many studies on, if you don't have local journalism, you're less informed, you, you're less likely to run for public office, there's more pollution. There's so many examples. And that's just my own little ecosystem. And for whose benefit it's controlled. Tell me again why we've set up a government purchasing program that allows pharma to charge whatever it wants, far more than it charges in other countries. That directly slams family after family after family when they're looking at these huge copays that they can't afford and they're making heart-wrenching decisions about whether and to what extent and, and how often they can forego medicine or treatments that would save their lives so that companies worth billions can increase their profits There's never a question about whether the government should regulate the marketplace. It always does. It necessarily does. There is no marketplace without government setting the basic rules. There's never a question about whether government should be involved in the marketplace. It always is. The fundamental question is, for whose benefit does government regulate the marketplace? Or the looming, the, the catastrophe that's already here, but it's going to get far worse in terms of housing, government is allowing more and more housing to transfer into the hands of private equity and Wall Street. Shelter is a basic human need. It has also been one of the most important routes to economic security and stability and intergenerational transfers of wealth across the history of the United States. Now we're seeing government facilitating the systematic dispossession of average Americans, allowing vast amounts of our housing to to shift into the hands of profit-maximizing enterprises that exist literally thousands of miles, but also metaphorically thousands of miles away from where their tenants are living. These will be the cruelest of landlords, the most cynical of slumlords. It's happening now. It's accelerating now. Again, the way to think about it is, as government structures the market, it can structure it in a way that is inclusive, that works for the vast majority, that provides realistic possibilities of economic opportunity, or government can structure a marketplace that is extractive, that treats the population as it would a stand of trees, something from which wealth is to be harvested. Clear-cut them. Take everything there is. Leave nothing but barren ground. That's the extractive model. But it's being applied not just to the environment. It's being applied to us. So... On that note, you've been trying to counter that, and I think a lot of people, and and this idea of bridging across the differences that keep us divided and unable 
to really address what's happening and to feel like we have no power. And so I'm curious, what are some of the results of your work using solidarity to bring people together, trying to bridge these differences? I think that the race class narrative project was enormously successful at the level of establishing the effectiveness of these sorts of messages through message testing, through polling. And then from there, we've seen, for example, um, Democrats in Minnesota use this message effectively. We've also seen grassroots groups. I mentioned earlier Reverend William Barber's New Poor People's Campaign, uh, People's Action, um, SCIU as as an enormous labor union is deeply committed to this race-class fusion perspective. And yet, I can't help but feel like so many people struggle with these two twin insights. We're being intentionally divided. We must respond with intentional coming together, with intentional solidarity. And, and that's really, I think, where Civity is doing tremendous work. We must be intentional about creating solidarity. And when I say we, I mean all of us as individuals looking around at our own lives, our own workplaces and saying, how do I get to know these people across differences that I don't really know about? I also mean labor unions, I mean foundations, I mean universities, I mean churches, I mean local and state government, I mean the federal government. We are at risk of losing the United States as a democracy because for 50 years we haven't responded to strategies of intentional division. The sort of response we need, the commensurate response is 50 years of intentional solidarity building. So how can people do this? This isn't something we do just today or tomorrow. This is a core insight that we need to work towards. We must, in all of our efforts, in every sphere, continually strive to build a sense of social connection and solidarity and linked fate among Americans across all of our myriad differences. I'm reminded of the classic phrase from the American Revolution. It's actually the the Latin phrase that's on the seal of the presidency of the United States, e pluribus unum. It was the core insight of a fledgling democracy composed of people from different countries in Europe coming together and saying, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And the insight wasn't, we're all going to be the same. And frankly, we have to be clear, that insight that all groups would be welcome as part of the one, that wasn't honored either. And yet the brilliance, the revolutionary potential of the insight was there already to have a successful democracy in which our families can thrive requires that we recognize that out of our many different origins, we share the same fate. And to recognize as well, and I think this is the 
the genius of 250 years of American history that the restrictions of the founding fathers need to be left behind us. That the one needs to include women, it needs to include people of all races, it needs to include people with different visions about how to organize their families, their love, their relationships. That the core insight out of many one needs to be recovered, reinvigorated, given new power for a new multiracial, egalitarian, economically just society. Yeah. And Civity hopes to be, you know, you talk about social cohesion and Civity sees itself as being intentional about creating social cohesion. I want to ask you one more question, and that is, how did you come to this work? Why this for you? I've been a student of race and racism in the United States since I was in law school. And for several decades, I was among the many who thought that racism is mainly a white problem for people of color. And then Barack Obama was elected. And now I knew enough about race and racism in the United States to scoff at the idea that we were suddenly post-racial. But Obama's election for me presented another sort of crisis. I had thought that mass incarceration was a clear manifestation of white racism and that now a black president and a black attorney general would surely dismantle the cruel, massively unfair system of incarceration that we created. But they didn't. And far from dismantling mass incarceration, they exported many of its techniques and much of its logic to the deportation context. Barack Obama, over eight years, deported at a sustained level more people than any other president of the United States. Why? Why did he do so? And it was a crisis for me, both the sort of personal political crisis of why is he doing this? So many lives, so many families destroyed, but also the intellectual crisis. I'd been thinking the story was white racism. Here's this individual who I happen to know because we're at law school together. This wasn't white racism. And that's what led me to realize this was normal politics. Obama understood that politics was conducted in the United States in terms of racial fear stories. And he needed to protect himself against those fear stories by showing how tough he could be on people of color framed as criminals are threatening. And once I saw that, it was like this epiphany because I realized I had been misunderstanding racism. I had been getting it wrong. And that this new recovered understanding of racism, and again, it's this older, more radical conception, Du Bois and King, they understood this. Dolores Huerta, Cesar Chavez, they understood this. That this more radical conception of racism was also more radically emancipatory because it promised freedom not just for communities of color, but for all of our communities when we linked arms, when we stood together. And it was really a sort of a, a turning point for me, both as a race scholar intellectually, this shift in paradigm about what racism is, 
but also professionally, because it really came to seem to me at that point that this shift in perspective was the was the key to rebuilding a belief in American democracy capable of answering the enemies who beset us, the the class war we're losing, the the hucksters of hate, capable of responding to them, and capable of actually building the good things, the good society that we dearly want for ourselves and our children. Thank you to my guest, Ian Haney-Lopez, professor at UC Berkeley School of Law, author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, as well as Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America, and founder of the Race Class Narrative Project in the Race Class Academy, focused on countering dog whistle politics and building cross-racial and cross-class solidarity. Find out more at race-class-academy.com. This was part two of my conversation with Ian Haney-Lopez. You can hear part one at newsincontext.net. This is also Civity Week on News in Context. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. To learn more, go to civity.org. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing News in Context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.